Hello and welcome to Banter. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with Robert Doerr, AEI president, and we'll be your Banter hosts. We have two exciting new guests on Banter with us today. We have Benjamin and Jenna Story, who are both professors of politics and international affairs at Furman University. They're also both directors of the Tocqueville program on that campus. And they're going to be talking to us today a little bit about their new book, which is called Why We Are Restless on the Modern Quest for Contentment. Thank you both so much for joining the podcast. Thank you, Phoebe. We're very glad to be here. Thanks for having us on. Ben and Jenna, I'm very happy to have you. I don't know the other Phoebe you mentioned, but they're also incoming AI scholars who will be yes. joining us this year. I have been to visit them at Furman College, where they, where they teach and are absolutely spectacular members of the faculty. And this book, Why We Are Restless, On the Modern Quest for Contentment. Phoebe, by the way, I'm always on the modern quest for contentment. That's what I <laughs> Aren't do every we all? Day. <laughs> I want to be content. It's just spectacular. I mean, there are sections I want to read out loud to all of our listeners, and I may do it during this broadcast. So we're really glad to have you. And before you get to me, you can see I'm very excited, but I've been getting some listener comments that they want to hear more from Phoebe and less from me. <laughs> so Phoebe, you got the first question. Great. So I get to tell everyone how to be happy. Kick <laughs> it right off. Great. Yeah, we're very excited to, to have you both joining AEI. And to start out, I was just going to ask you a little bit about where the motivation to, to write the book came from and kind of what you were seeing on campus that made you think that we need to kind of think all together about why we're restless. Yeah, thanks, thanks for that question. The angle into this book really did begin from our, a puzzle that we were continually encountering as teachers and mentors. And the, the puzzle kind of presented it, itself to us as, as this. We'd be working with students for, for four years all, often, and, and they would, these students would be flourishing. They would be succeeding. They would be hitting every mark that our college had asked them to hit. So they'd be taking a great diversity of classes, fulfilling all their general education requirements, and not just in a kind of checklist way, but like really doing well in them and, and getting a high GPA. And they, were also, they also just weren't, you know, sort of classroom nerds. They do a lot outside of the classroom. They'd be engaged in extracurriculars. They'd be involved in clubs. They'd be founding clubs. They'd be taking advantages of all that our college has to offer in terms of study abroad opportunities, often several times. And you would think that if they did all the things we asked them to do and did so well at each of those endeavors, they would be set for life, right? They'd be ready to go. But we found it time and again that in their senior year, and we found this particularly the case among those students who were, had, had really done everything well, that they were directionless. And they felt like they had spent four years running around, and they weren't quite sure what they had accomplished, and they weren't sure what step to take next. We looked at it as a kind of problem of restlessness. Uh, another term we put on it is a kind of frantic paralysis. They were very active. And yet they felt like they weren't undertaking any specific action. And we wanted to understand this initially kind of as a, from a pedagogical or point of view. But once we started to look at the problem, we thought it's certainly not just a, a problem at Furman. This is a problem that we see among college students everywhere. In, in the summers, we teach at Hertog, where, as you know, we get to teach students from all over the country, excellent students. And we saw the same problem in those students as well. Of course, when we became attentive to the phenomenon, we saw it in ourselves. <laughs> Many days, I think, you know, most of us can understand. We get, we get to the end of the day, we've done, we've been very busy, we've hit all the marks, and yet we're not sure what we've accomplished. And so we wanted to think about this problem of restlessness. We then connected that kind of problem in our, in our personal and professional lives to some 
thinkers we've been working on for many years. At first, in particular, Tocqueville. Tocqueville has a chapter in his book, Democracy in America, called Why Americans Are Restless in the Midst of Their Prosperity. Why is it that we have everything we could possibly dream of having? Moreover, as he says, we're among the freest, most, most enlightened and prosperous people the world has ever seen. And yet we're not happy and yet we're not content. In fact, we kind of drive ourselves crazy with this restless, frenetic activity whose purpose we're not really sure of. So that's really what launched us into writing this book. And then as we started to reflect on our research, we, we realized that Tocqueville was making this observation, not only because he's a kind of genius observer, but because he was deeply schooled in a, a history of French conversations, particularly about this topic of restlessness. So you go back and you, you say, okay, let's look at this from the perspective of four French philosophers, Montaigne, Pascal, Rousseau, and Tocqueville. And the book is really a conversation between all of them tackling this issue of, of how to live a, a happy, flourishing, positive life. And so I thought just to lay the groundwork, let's do them one at a time quickly, just to give the summary points, because they don't all agree. In fact, they sometimes challenge each other very strongly. And so, Ben, why don't you start us out with Montaigne? What, what was he saying? And what path does he offer to kids looking for a direction in life? Montaigne lived in the 16th century. And the 16th century in France was a century of religious war. And so the problem on Montaigne's mind was the problem of fanaticism. As he puts it, his neighbors were willing to burn each other alive over differences of opinion about the meaning of pronouns. Yeah, in these cases, different pronouns than the ones we argue about. They're worried about pronouns at the, at the, in the midst of language of religious significance. But nonetheless, the, the, the passions were very extreme. So Montaigne looked around at his neighbors who were, who were transfixed by all these intense religious passions. And he said, these people are taking themselves far too seriously. And he looked at the classical and Christian philosophic and religious tradition that he inherited. And he said that everybody in this tradition is taking themselves far too seriously. And so what he saw was a tradition of arguing about the highest good, about the summum bonum. And what he saw was that the philosophers of old had come up with 288 different answers to those questions. There was no consensus. And he thought, we, can't, we shouldn't be arguing about this at the top of our lungs anymore. And so Montaigne proposes to us a life of kind of self-satisfied existential indifference. He proposes to us a model of contentment that consists of a kind of high-minded dabbling, you might describe it. Nonchalance. That's right. Nonchalance. Say it all the time, nonchalance. That's a lovely word. Great way to be. Might not move the country forward much, but it's a nice, it's a nice idea. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of the things that makes Montaigne so attractive. And one spends, you know, a week or so with, you know, poking around in the essays. It is very hard to resist the charm of this guy. And, on the, and so his, and then his nonchalance is at the heart of this. There's a famous phrase that he uses to describe this. He says, he's talking about death, and he says, I want death to find me planting my cabbages, but nonchalant about it, and still more about my unfinished garden. And he has another um, one, he says, when I dance, I dance, which I love. I love that. Yes. He wants to just be content where he is. He calls it loyally enjoying the human condition. So that's him. And that sounds really great, except it's a little privileged and a little bit want to come back to to plant cabbages. So what about Pascal? (laughs) So Pascal 
lived in the next century, the 17th century, and saw the kind of people that Montaigne's book had influenced. And, and I have to say that Montaigne's book was, was very, very influential. It was kind of bedside reading for the up-and-coming classes. So the nobility who were kind of changing from a feudal nobility to a nobility that would be more based at, at court took a page from Montaigne and devoted their lives to the kind of elite dabbling that, that he was presenting as the way to happiness. So they spent their time, you know, hunting and gambling and flirting and talking in salons, things like this. And uh, we're, we're sort of proud of themselves for doing so. Pascal comes along and looks at them and says, you are not happy. You are definitely fooling yourself by thinking that you can be happy by these kind of shallow pursuits. The human soul is just too too vast. Its longings are too immense to be satisfied by such things. You think about it, what we really want is life, but what we get is death. We want happiness, but that is not our, our fate in this world. We get suffering. We want to know the truth about things, but our minds are just too weak to grasp it. And, and so that makes us miserable. Doing all the things that these courtiers were doing is really a way, Pascal suggests, of trying to distract us from that fundamental misery of the human experience. So that, that sounds that sounds dour, and in a way it is, as you have indicated, but the misery, for, there's a kind of hidden door here that Pascal opens because he sees the misery is a kind of sign of our greatness. He points out that human beings are the only kind of beings in the universe, insofar as we're aware. Human beings are the only kind of beings to be aware of their own unhappiness. And that being aware of our kind of paradoxical nature, the fact that we want more than we seem to be able to get in this life, makes us wonder if there's any answer to the, the human mystery. And what Pascal is trying to do is set us on the quest to find the answer to that mystery of the human condition. There, are other, there was one aspect of Pascal that was fun, and that was his takedown of the Jesuit, which I think you say he had some humor in that, that he was, and a little bit of Samizdat. He published it secretly and put it out, and, and, and the Jesuits were in power, and they were horrified by this sort of challenging of their self-regard, really. Am I right about that? I, we've got some Jesuits here at AEI, and I like to, I like to, I want to make them aware that that there's something not quite entirely right with their way of seeing things or their history. That's am I right. wrong about uh, that or am I right? No, that, that, that's right, Robert. The Jesuits were the most powerful churchmen in France. When Pascal wrote his provincial letters, he was friends with some people that have come to be known as Jansenists. They thought of themselves simply as Augustinian Christians. And the Jansenists and Pascal thought that the Jesuits were giving away the heroic core of Christianity so as to keep powerful people aligned with the church. And so the, the Jansenists were coming under tremendous pressure from the Jesuits, and they were searching around uh, for a response. And the, and the form that their response took was Pascal's provincial letters. And these were letters to a fictional friend in the provinces that Pascal wrote to describe a kind of erudite theological debate that was going on in the midst of Paris between the Jansenists and the Jesuits. And his tactic throughout is a tactic of mockery. And he's extraordinarily good about this. And this is, this is something that, that is, is little appreciated by Pascal, who is now better known for his pensées, which are, in truth, his greater book. But Pascal's provincial letters are a work of tremendous wit, so much so that one of their greatest admirers was Voltaire. 
who had no admiration or sympathy for Christianity whatsoever, but he still saw that Pascal was a tremendous literary stylist who knew how to lampoon a fool when he saw the opportunity. So, okay, now let's go to Rousseau. So we've got the the sort of happy guy, and then we've got the church man, God, <laughs> death. And and then Rousseau, does he bring the state into it, or or is that wrong, or the citizen? Rousseau is a bifurcated thinker. And so I think the way that we try to think about Rousseau is as somebody who takes something from both Pascal and Montaigne. He, with Pascal, he sees that a Montaignean kind of dabbling happiness is just not enough to satisfy the heart of man. But with Montaigne, he wants a natural, this-worldly kind of happiness. So he's not willing to hope for grace in the way that Pascal is. And so Rousseau creates this standard of natural wholeness, which he tries to help us find ways to recover. And there are several different ways to do that in Rousseau. And so one of them, Robert, and I think this is what you're referring to, is his ideal of the citizen. And he sees the citizen as part of a political community that kind of absorbs his entire existence with lots of resonances that are very troubling for people who've seen the history of the French Revolution in the 20th century. The other part of Rousseau, though, is he is the first great apostle of authenticity. And so he is the, the, the first great bohemian thinker who encourages us to discover our authentic selves. In both of these things, Rousseau is pursuing this kind of wholeness that he thinks we have lost through the corruptions of civilized society. And so he, he sort of gives us several different options to go forth. Our reading of Rousseau is that ultimately, when you encounter these, these, this variety of options, you end up more divided than you were in the first place. But his legacy for all of us is enormous. And then we come to Americans' favorite French philosopher, Tocqueville, because <laughs> he loved us so much. What does he add to this discussion? Well, Robert, as I was saying in the beginning, Tocqueville is kind of where we started with the problem. But we saw that by reading all of the, the people that, that he read and by connecting the kind of conversation they were having about restlessness, we could see what he was saying about Americans in a kind of new light or, or a deeper, appreciated in a deeper sense. And what we've, what we've come, how we've come to think about it is when Tocqueville looks at America, he's looking at what we call Montanianism writ large and changed, updated or, or altered to fit a bourgeois society, right? So as you mentioned, I think when you talked about Montaigne at first, he was an aristocrat who did not have to work for a living and could spend his time accumulating these kinds of, you know, enjoying all these little pursuits without worrying about where to get his next meal. We have, for, for various reasons, accepted a lot of what Montaigne paints as the sort of portrait of happiness, a kind of life that in which we achieve a balance among different pursuits and pleasures and kind of enjoy all of them a little bit. And yet we also have to work to afford those things, right? So it infuses our quest for imminent content, what we call imminent contentment, contentment in the here and now by this engagement in these worldly goods with quite a bit more anxiety. And I think that's what Tocqueville is seeing in Americans when he observes that Americans are, are restless in the midst of their prosperity. So I want to ask about a couple of themes that run through all of these philosophers or your discussion of these philosophers. One was citizenship and, and faith, Christianity, family, sex, parenthood. I'm now jumping around, but I want to come back to them. But the first one I want to ask about 
just because we're on Tocqueville is democracy, American democracy. So you have a passage in the book that starts, jealous of its prerogatives, the democratic soul Tocqueville describes believes in a principle celebrated by Montaigne, the principle Todorov calls the autonomy of the I, the free, independent, egalitarian American citizen engaged in the pursuit of happiness enumerated among its, his fundamental rights naturally wishes to be as self-sufficient as possible. Intellectually, he wants to guide himself only on the basis of, quote, the individual effort of his reason. He prides himself on accepting the noble challenge of deciphering the world on his own and living by the light of his self-generated conviction. Pragmatic and adept at solving practical difficulties life presents, the American, quote, concludes that everything in the world is explicable and that nothing goes beyond the limits of intelligence. So I love that. And what I want to know is, is that helpful to these young people in your college campuses or, that are restless? Do they, have we lost that? Because later, there's a kind of corruption of democracy and corruption of, or there's a sense that American, Americans today have lost some of that. Talk to me a little bit about the American system today as seen by kids. Have they have no faith in it anymore, or that sort of that sort of belief in the autonomy of the I? So, Robert, that there's a sort of noble and more debased version of this kind of sensibility about the autonomy of the I. And what Tocqueville tells us is that to have the noble version of it, particularly in intellectual matters, we actually have to be willing to apprentice ourselves to minds greater than our own. That is, if you really want to understand the question of the good life, you might have to spend a lot of time with a thinker like Aristotle to plumb the depths of the question of what virtue is and how one might realize it in one's life. And, you know, if you're an independent thinker, you're not going to just read Aristotle. You're going to read lots of stuff. You're going to read Aristotle. You're going to read Plato. You're going to read Montesquieu. You're going to read the American founders. You're going to read lots of things. But when you try to do this on the quick, when you want to assert your independence without doing any previous study, what Tocqueville describes already back in the 1830s is that one's mind tends to not have any resistance to the movement of the crowd. And so Tocqueville thinks that there is something in America back then called the tyranny of the majority over thought. And I think without an educational establishment that robustly trains people in the art of thinking, in the art provided by liberal education, that tyranny of the majority over thought becomes all the more powerful. So now another theme that I was curious about, it runs throughout the whole book, either one of you can take this, is family and sex and sort of close relations with a, another. It's a lot about friendship and about even marriage, although not explicitly. How does that play in your view of these four philosophers? guidance to all of us and how to live a, a life of contentment? Robert, I think I'd say that we begin considering this theme with Montaigne, who sets forth for us an ideal of friendship. And what is really distinctive about Montaigne's modern ideal of friendship is that it is a completely free relationship formed for its own sake, without any ulterior motive. It is a true match of soulmates. Montaigne had a great friend named Etienne de La Boissie, the, um, and he formed this kind of friendship with La Boissie, and he celebrates it. 
in the essays. And he says it's something that comes along once every few centuries. And I think one of the things that happens over the course of modern over the course of modern history is that we come to rely more and more on these kinds of social relationships as bedrock social institutions. That is, it becomes almost obligatory to try to find a soulmate. And sometimes this is great. I happen to find one of those, and she happens to be standing here with me right now. And it's wonderful. Obligatory (laughs) to try to find a soulmate. Then be on podcast together. Modern dream. It's not about us, Phoebe. I'm talking about... (laughs) I know that. (laughs) I'm a parent of four children. All are young adults. And I have a tendency to encourage them to try to find a soulmate mm-hmm. o- overtly. And in, in this modern world, you're not, allowed to, you're not allowed to say that. But I don't see why, given the, <laughs> its importance to your, over, your happiness. And then the second thing I do also, my wife hits me whenever I do it, is to the two of my children that are married, I say, it's, how about let's get some more doors going here. And You're fun at Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah, I'm so fun at Thanksgiving. <laughs> but these things are important. The French philosophers knew that. The stories know that, right? Yes. Well, it's interesting because I think you maybe your approach here, your parental approach is, you know, not something that is, Tocqueville would say anyway, very, very sympathetic to our democratic sensibility, right? We typically send our young people forth into, say, a collegiate world that is distant often from their hometowns, and we ask them to kind of be their own matchmakers. And that, you know, that can work out extremely well, but I think more often than not, it, it doesn't work out terribly well. They're disconnected from the practical life of their own households where they've grown up and really from the practical life that they're often from the practical life they're going to make when they leave college. And so as my husband would say, said, there's, you know, marriage, we want marriage and marriage is a kind of bedrock social institution where we raise the next generation, where we teach them how to think about responsibility and civic engagement and things like this. But Oddly enough, the way we're kind of asking young people to form marriages is not necessarily con- conducive to that because it's, it's much more sort of voluntary and highly specific and far more sentimental than actually most people have approached it in the past. So, okay, social relationships, marriage, family. We've already talked about faith. One of the things that I was concerned about in reading the book is, particularly as it relates to your audience that inspired you to write it was the old line from that Senator McCain used to always use, you know, you got to believe in something bigger than yourself, that that is essential to a productive life. Are you endorsing that in your coverage of these philosophers that you advise young people as a result of this deep thinking that, you know, devote yourself to a cause bigger than yourself? I think we're encouraging young people to see their lives as a pointed quest rather than a kind of hectic dabbling. And so we don't think that we can sit in our our thrones at the front of our classrooms and tell the young exactly what they should think and exactly how they should live. But we think we can and should encourage them to ask the questions that are already there in their souls much more, in a much more demanding way than they have often been trained to do. And we think that if they do that, their lives might have a little bit less of the kind of hectic pointlessness that we so often observe among the young. So, Robert, may uh, I also say something about that, which is that I, I don't think human beings, I, I think we think that human beings 
don't have the option of not reaching beyond themselves to something greater. It's just really a question of what is that greater thing you're going to be reaching for? Is it going to be something that's ennobling to yourself and, and helpful to others? Or is it going to be something that's debasing to yourself and harmful to others? I think when you see something like the opioid epidemic, what people are doing there is trying to reach for something beyond what they have, but that's not a good way to do it, clearly. I think you might also see, well, I think we, we think something that is troubling our politics today is that people are reaching for a kind of political significance that our liberal institutions aren't designed to bear. So because our, our private quests for the kind of transcendent meaning you're talking about have become less regular, regularized and robust, we tend, many of us tend to reach toward politics for that same kind of satisfaction, but that's not how our country was designed. And so we're kind of operating in a way that is destroying our institutions in a lot of cases. Well, I'm going to follow up on that a little bit, because in the discussion of Montaigne, you have this reference to monsters. Men can sometimes be monsters, but as Montaigne remarks, I have seen no monster or miracle in the world more evident than myself. The inward regard of the Montaignean self allows us to recognize the monstrous within, to see that it is not really foreign to us. We thereby learn to see the monstrous in others with humanity. The circumscription that contains us within ourselves and compels us to come to grips with the monstrous within also teaches us justice, you say, for it allows us to let others be. And I had a reaction to that. I wrote in the, in the column, the Holocaust. And I want to push back a little bit on your sort of don't get too political or don't think politics is important. But sometimes it is important, isn't it? Yes, Robert. And I, I think in that passage, we are paraphrasing Montaigne and making the case for what he thinks as, as effectively as we can. But this is a place where I would get off the train. Yeah, 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 me too. I got off the train one day. <laughs> I loved him, but there was a point where I just said, this is just too idyllic. Yeah, yeah. well, it's funny because, you know, it's written in absolutely terrible political circumstances, and it makes one more sympathetic to him to realize this. But at the same time, he counsels the kind of political indifference that just isn't appropriate in an American context, whatever appropriateness it might have had in his own. And so, yeah, I agree with you that there are other better models for thinking about American politics that embrace a more active kind of citizenship. And that's, of course, one of the things that Tocqueville has long been celebrated for is his love of things like the robust life of the little American town in which people are really seriously participating in governing themselves. And that brings me to one other theme that was I thought was missing is I looked at it in terms of the way I think about how I order my life, mm -hmm. family, faith, country. But there's a fourth element, and that is work and vocation. And do these philosophers add much to that discussion or to that theme? Do they give you some words that you can say to the, the young people that you teach, find that, that vocation, that body of work that you want to do and go do that, and there will be joy in that? in and of itself. Robert, although we focus this book on these four French thinkers, there are some other thinkers who often preoccupy our minds and often enter into our conversations with our students. And one of those thinkers is Aristotle, who, told, who tells us that happiness is activity of the soul in accordance with virtue. And this is a phrase we repeat to our students constantly. We urge them to think about the work to which they want to dedicate their lives as an, as an activity 
that they're going to find intrinsically useful, satisfying, and noble, as opposed to simply a means to an end. So I think that's what this kind of reflection can add to our reflections on work, is to understand work as a deeper kind of human satisfaction, as opposed to simply an honor or a step on a ladder. I think the other thing we're trying to do in the book is make the question of how should I live more central to the experience of our students and their education in colleges. We've noted that you know, the ancients used to ask, Aristotle Plato used to ask this question in terms of what is the best way of life? And that is a question when we sort of pose that to our students, even in the, in the mouth of Aristotle or Plato, that strikes them as very strange and maybe even slightly offensive because they're asking us to rank different kinds of activity or different kinds of work, right, that a human being might do and say, what's best? What will actually satisfy and what won't? And I think one of the things we've thought about in the context of this book is to realize that that question grates or offends because we are kind of implicitly Montanian. We are skeptical about asking the question of the highest good. And so when we hear it, we just want to ignore it. Well, that doesn't help you live well, right? Okay. If you're not really, if you don't think you can engage in an inquiry about what it means to live well. So that is, that's what we're trying to do with our, our students. And we think this book is, you know, gives us four people that present four different ways of living well. And, and that itself is, I think, useful to think through each of them as we try to do in this book and give them their, their make the best case for each of them. But it also says something about why we, why we today might not be disposed to take that question seriously if we have a kind of conventional Montanianism and gets us to kind of question our conventions in that sense. So the, the, one of the things about the book that's particularly nice is it's, it's got a beautiful cover. And it has this our listeners can't see it, but it's this scribbling, sort of doodling. You think of a, of a student, or I, I could easily have done this doodle, <laughs> sitting in a class, idly, uncertain about my future. And the note says, the, the title is, Why We Are Restless on the Modern Quest for Contentment. And that raises an issue. There's a little bit of, in your tone, sometimes this is true of AI people generally, I've noticed, is that there's kind of a nostalgia for a previous time prior to technology and Twitter and the awfulness of our current political climate when these questions were more prominent or more people understood the answer to these questions better than they do now. And on the other hand, in reading this book, it's clear to me people have been struggling with these questions forever. And so look, I wanted to ask you guys, do you think we're farther away from from a world in which people of purpose and thought and depth are tackling these questions in a good good way or are we are we just as we've always been you just want to remind us and that these are good things to be thinking about yeah well we're, we're not trying to be nostalgic in this book and i i think that's because we think that the the best thing we can do with this book is to try to take the temperature of where we are try to assess you know, why people are unhappy now, not so that we can, you know, hope we lived, wish we lived centuries ago, but to try to understand how we might make our way, make our way forward. So even if we are to try to capture some of what was good in our, you know, our institutions in this country, for example, in the last 100 or 200 years, we're going to have to do that in a new way. We're going to have to attract people and compel their imagination 
to, say, our institution by appealing to them from where they are now, right? So the book is more of an assessment of where we are now so that we might kind of guide what we do next. I just add to that, Robert, that one thing we do agree about Rousseau with is he says at one point or other that, that the history never goes backward, and we think that is true. And it's also the case that some of the things that you were referring to a moment ago, like our, our internet habits and so on and so forth, it's really interesting. I think those, the, you know, the habits of distraction that come with digital life, that stuff is very much on our minds as it is on everyone's mind. But Tocqueville actually pointed it out already in 1835. He said the, 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 the habit of inattention is one of the greatest vices of the democratic mind. So we've always had a kind of distracted habit of mind, and it's always somewhat countercultural to learn to think slowly and steadily in the way that each of these authors encourages us to do and thereby puzzle our lives through a little bit more intelligently than we might otherwise. And so we don't think we can go back to the past, but we do think that the past has a lot of treasures from which we can learn in the present. I I particularly like the parts in your book that talked about the quest and the search. And so you have have a paragraph, self-knowledge brings us not sanity and equilibrium, but anguish. That anguish, however, may impel us to seek. Such seeking in anguish is the one rational response to a clear-eyed, undistracted assessment of our natural condition. If we engage in that search, we transform our restlessness from an irritable and directionless unease into a determined quest for an answer to the paradox of ourselves. I love that. And you close the book with this, you talk about learning to perceive the height of our existence as well as its breadth is what can transform our hectic dabbling into work with steady purpose. You're hearing this, Phoebe? Work with steady purpose. (laughs) Art of choosing cannot bring our restless hearts to a standstill, but it may help us turn our pointless busyness into a pointed quest. Really beautiful. What more do you want to say? (laughs) Well, Robert, those are, thank you for picking out those passages. They're the fruit of of long reflection, and the, the first of them is a meditation on Pascal. And, you know, what I, would, what I would say there is that, you know, Pascal was a tough thinker, as, as we've already talked about. And he can see my first reaction to Pascal was that he was just terribly grim. And in fact, when somebody made me read the Pensee 20 years ago, I read 100 pages, threw it across the room and vowed that I would never touch the book again. And since then, it has become one of the most valuable books in my library. And I think one of the reasons for that is that Pascal is honest about human unhappiness and suffering. And we think our students and many young people are encouraged to pretend that they're happy all the time. And having to do that makes them even more unhappy because they, 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 they're aware of their own fakery and they feel guilty about the fact that they're not always cheerful. I think Pascal gives us more, more of an honest assessment of what the human condition is like. And that honest assessment might be the key to pursuing a more substantive kind of happiness. Jenna? Well, I'm just very grateful with this conversation and thinking about next year with, with great relish and thinking about how we might be able to work with others in AI and, and talk more about these things. I'm, I'm really interested to hear about the overlap of our work. Great. Well, this has been a lovely conversation. I hope you've enjoyed it. I really recommend to all of our listeners why we are restless on the modern quest for contentment. It's a beautiful book. I'm going to send it around to all my friends. And 
The stories are wonderful people and they're great additions to our AI community. And we look forward to seeing you all of next year. Phoebe? Hopefully in person. Yeah. Well, hopefully, <laughs> certainly in person. Per- this is the day in which the masks mask mandate was ended. Happiness we're all very happy here. Today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're happy here too. But it's nice to see faces again. That's right. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.